Hello and welcome to the End of the World podcast. This is the place where we talk about how the global order which has defined the world for the last few decades is gradually crumbling, falling apart, being challenged, bursting at the seams or maybe transforming into something else. Every week I'm going to talk to a big thinker who is engaging with this central question of our times. We'll be talking to politicians, to professors, journalists, hackers, intellectuals, military strategists and many others. This week, I'm particularly thrilled to be talking to Carl Bildt, who, amongst other things, was Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of Sweden, is one of the co-chairs of the European Council on Foreign Relations, but is also one of the big pioneers of thinking about what the liberal order means for the internet and how the internet should be governed. So, Carl, maybe we can go straight into the meat of the issue. Um, what actually is the liberal order in the real world? Well, in the liberal, in in the in the real world, in the big world, of course, the liberal order is a number of different things that has defined the way in which the world has worked since 1945, and in an enlarged and deep inversion since 1991. That has affected security, trade, uh, economic relationships, uh, governance of conflicts, more or less, has to be said, but primarily worked fairly well during a period from, say, 1991, the fall of the Soviet Union, up until, say, 2008 or something like that, when the confrontation started to be more marked on global affairs. Um, So that, I think, is what we talk about as a liberal global order, which has given, by the way, if you look at statistics, has given mankind probably the best quarter of a century ever in human history. If you look at all of the social, economic, human, whatever indicators that you can find, it's been an extraordinary successful period for the world. And that is to a large extent due to uh, a combination of two things, has to be said, the liberal global order and, of course, advances in science and technology. But they alone would not have been enough to produce the spectacular successes that we've seen. So... To what extent do you think that that order is now coming apart? Do you think it really is the end of the world as we know it? Well, I wouldn't say the end of the world, and I wouldn't say coming apart, but it's clearly under attack. It is uh, fraying. It is uh, splintering to a certain extent. You can see it on the security side, obviously, with uh, uh, not only the, the, the Russians not accepting the roots of the games, but wanting to rewrite them and do their own thing. The Chinese clearly asserting their powers. And lately, of course, we have the United States, which has been sort of the custodian, more or less, of the liberal global order, saying, effectively, we don't care. It's not only the president. We had this uh, op-ed piece by uh, the National Security Advisor and by the head of the uh, National Economic Council saying that, no, it's not rules. It is rivalry. That is the dominating feature. And we're going to play our game. It doesn't unravel the entire liberal global order, but clearly it is under threat and under danger. So one of the things which has really created a global order in the sense that it has brought the world together in ways that were completely impossible to imagine, uh, you know, even in the early days of my own lifetime, is the internet. And you were um, one of the chairs of the, the Global Commission on Internet Governance, which spent a few years looking hard at the future of the internet and the way that that is being changed by some of the trends that you described uh, in geopolitics with the rise of other powers. Can you talk a bit about what kind of order we have on the internet and what some of the challenges are to the liberal order in the internet world? 
Yes, uh, the internet is, of course, a rather unique phenomenon, has to be said. It has very rapidly, say in a quarter of a century or something like that, evolved into the uh, by far most important infrastructure of the world and is soon to be the infrastructure of every other infrastructure. And it started really from uh, sort of the private sector defect. You can say that there was an amount of governmental research money into it, but essentially out of the academia, out of the technological community, out of business. And it has evolved uh, under a system of governance, which we call the multi-stakeholder approach. That is a, a biosphere or web of uh, different institutions and different organizations and different arrangements that has governed and decided standards and protocols and, uh, and uh, name systems and domain name systems, um, essentially not without too much government control. Um, and has, as I said, worked amazingly well. But a system of governance, uh, multi-stakeholder, bottoms-up, uh, that is, globally speaking, fairly, fairly unique. What is happening now is, of course, that uh, governments are becoming aware, not only governments, everyone is becoming aware of the enormous significance of the net. It is really the blood of our societies and will be even more in the future. Internet of Things or Industry 4.0 or whatever you're talking about. It's all about the Internet. Um, and that means that they want to control it. They see it uh, as an opportunity, certainly. Uh, but some regimes, say the Chinese, uh, see it as a threat and, and want to bring it under control. And, and accordingly, we have a discrete global battle uh, underway for control of the net where you can say you have on the one side the West, the Americans, the Europeans to some extent, defending the multi-stakeholder dynamic governance approach of the net. And then you have an emerging coalition led by the Chinese who say, uh, this is too important. We need the states to control this. It is threatening our monopoly of power, our monopoly of information. And, um, and that's a battle that is being fought as we speak. And to what extent is it really this bipolar battle between a sort of open and a closed internet versus one where there are lots of different forces at play? Certainly in, in some European countries, people are very worried about the, the dominance of big American companies that seem to be out of control and are making very, very important decisions which have an enormous impact not just on economic issues, but actually on the future of our politics, of our, of our daily discourse, um, and which seem to be well beyond the, the sovereignty of, of, of any individual country to affect. Well, um, I mean, you can certainly see here that in certain European countries and in part of the political spectrum, I think that's vastly segregated. Uh, if you don't want to be part of, of Facebook, you don't need to be part of Facebook. I'm hardly on Facebook myself. And I don't feel that Facebook controls my life in any sort of way. Uh, and we should not forget that the biggest internet nation of the world ain't the United States, it's now China. Uh, the Chinese government invests more uh, in controlling the internet than the American government is even in the vicinity of. And while uh, American internet companies go up and down, uh, we are more aware of those that are going up. But I mean, remember CompuServe, remember America Online, uh, remember Dell Computer, remember, uh, I can't remember all of them that have In fact, when I went to Facebook recently, they told me that beneath the logo for Facebook, you have a logo for Sun Microsystems, which uh, Mark Zuckerberg wanted to keep there to remind people how ah. 
companies Quite. can rise and fall. Yes, they can. And uh, and they will, because it's such an incredibly dynamic environment. I mean, Twitter didn't exist some years ago. Snapchat didn't exist a couple of years ago. What will be there? Uh, WeChat is much larger than the Chinese system. Alibaba is bigger than Amazon and eBay taken together. And, and I do think that in our free dynamic uh, societies, I'm more at ease with these different business-related entities fighting it out with each other. May, may the best one win than I, I am with sort of governments taking control of this. And mind you, Google can use the information to some commercial advantage. You can like or dislike that. A government can use information against on individuals for far more, both benevolent has to be said, uh, but also dangerous purposes versus individual freedoms. But I think one of the, the, the big challenges now is the fact that these companies are in a virtual monopoly situation in, in many different countries. And therefore, people are talking about whether they should be regulated like other monopolies. And there is, uh, you know, in France, for example, there's a big debate about la souveraineté numérique, digital mm. sovereignty. And... Uh, you know, in, in lots of other places, people are coming at, this, at these issues, you know, sometimes through security issues. There's a big debate in the UK about extremism um, and about encryption. Um, there are other countries that are more worried about the economic uh, opportunities being closed to, to domestic players because you have American companies in monopolistic positions. Um there are other people who are worried about the impact on, on the on the kind of national culture because these companies might not make the same sort of choices as, as them. And I think, do, do you think that those trends could end up leading to the fragmentation of the internet into lots of different internets? I mean, they could. Um, they could. There's a risk of what we call the balkanization of the internet if different governments get too afraid and start to sort of uh, regulate against the internet. Uh, I think those economies are going to lose out to a very large extent. Because what is happening is, of course, if you take a country like France, I mean, it's not that the French government have asked the French citizens to go on Facebook or Google or whatever, Twitter. They've chosen that themselves. And if you say take them away or take these systems away without replacing them with anything that is better, it means that that particular economy is going to lose out in the digital transformation. We are at the end of the industrial era. We're in the beginning of the digital era. There's going to be huge economic transformation and huge political transformations. And at the moment, yep, you have big American companies. We should not forget that we have European uh, dominance of mobile communications technologies. Uh, we have uh, a number of areas where European companies are very successful. We have X numbers of areas where the Chinese companies are coming big, big time with the Chinese state behind them. We have an extremely vibrant uh, Korean uh, ecosystem. Uh, Samsung is not an entirely unknown company. Um, and they are also extremely important. Kaku is their web platform that is conquering India as we speak about it. Um, so it's, it's, it's a far more dynamic environment and will become even more so. And I would say embrace it and win. Um, if you don't try that, you are bound to lose. So in your report, you set out three possible futures for the internet. Can you explain a bit how you see those futures? 
Well, I mean, the most dangerous one is, of course, if we have a fracturing of the Internet. If uh, states uh, try to take control of it, you have a balkanization of the net, uh, we can't uh, communicate across the borders. And it's not only communication in terms of you and me talking. Increasingly, we have the digital value chains that are important. Um, say that, I mean, uh, Rolls-Royce to take UK manufacturing of aircraft engines. Uh, they online can follow the performance of aircraft engines all over the world. Uh, they know when they are about to break down, when they need to be service and things like that. If those value chains break down, Scania, Swedish manufacturer of lorries, uh, they can follow their lorries around the world or around Europe and see how the engines are doing and if the gearbox is doing fine or whatever. Those sorts of things that, that add enormous value to the economy. If that breaks down, there's an economic cost to it that is quite significant for those countries concerned. Um, then we have, which you alluded to as well, we have the trust issue. Um, people need to trust uh, the assistance, uh, trust in two respects, either that they don't break down, I mean, the cybersecurity aspect of it, but also the privacy aspect of it and the integrity of the data. Uh, and there we need sort of legal frameworks for surveillance, what the states can do and what the states can't do. And then we need, in my opinion, and that's a very controversial issue at the moment, we need to allow also encryption to be there so that uh, we can protect the data that we want to protect. Not only from people looking at the data, that might be one of the least aspects of it, but changing the data as part of either cyber warfare or as we've seen lately, the so-called ransomware attacks, uh, to be able to protect ourselves against that. But that is something that uh, is controversial, also with security authorities around the world. Okay, so that's that's the worst scenario. And what are the what are the other two scenarios? Well, to to make them into two, to be, uh, to simplify things, that's the worst scenario. I mean, the the good scenario is, of course, that we unleash the power of the digital transformation. And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that we are now, if, if you compare with the Industrial Revolution, which has been going on for 200 or something more years, uh, we are now in the very beginning. We are roughly second generation steam engine. If you compare where we are in the digital world concerning the industrial age, and we know that after the second generation steam engine, there happened quite a lot, to put it very mildly, in terms of the industrial transformation. Uh, industry is going to be fundamentally transformed, it's going to decline as a proportion of employment because robots and automatization, artificial intelligence are coming, there's going to be services, there's going to be software, there's going to be those sorts of things that are going to dominate. This is going to have profound social impacts, already has by the way. Uh, there's a lot of talk or has been a lot of talk about the digital divide in geographical terms, different parts of the world developing differently. I'm more concerned at the moment with the uh, digital divide in generational terms. Uh, I don't think there's ever been a period when the parents have understood as little of what their young people are doing as they is. Young people all over the world on smartphones, nearly all of them very soon, uh, and, and living in a world that is very different from their parents. So it's going to have a lot of uh, a lot of effects that are going to be unsettling, uh, disruptive, uh, but I happen to believe uh, essentially enormously liberating for 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 mankind. Okay, so I'd like to to go a bit deeper into some of these questions of, of governance and how you can actually help the good scenario that you just talked about happen. But maybe before we go into that, 
we could deal with some of the, the kind of challenges um, in a bit more detail. One is uh, this whole question about cyber warfare and cyber security, which um, I know is something that you've thought a lot about. It'd be really interesting to hear both how uh, significant you think it is and how it might actually change the nature of international uh, relations, particularly as, as more and more of the world becomes powered by the internet with the internet of things and a shift uh, away from, from simply, uh, you know, an internet of, of, of data and text into a different kind of internet. Um, and the other thing which, which I know you've also been thinking about a lot is, is the question about Bitcoin, blockchain and the kind of new uh, currencies and what that does for, um, for the sovereignty of states. But so maybe we can do those two things and then talk, go back to the, the bigger theme of general governance. Do you want to start with cybersecurity? We can start with cybersecurity. Uh, cybersecurity has become very much in focus uh, during the last year, and rightly so. Uh, because when, when, when the internet was designed and it was set up and it started to become very widespread, uh, in retrospect, perhaps not enough attention was given to security and the stability issues. Um, and I don't think there's been enough of public education uh, to um, ordinary users of the sort of the dangers that are there. Um, I think the, the, the most important thing one can do in terms of cybersecurity is to educate each and every one of us uh, to be careful with sort of authentication, with passwords, uh, with those sorts of things so that our computers cannot be sort of stolen de facto by others and used for different sort of attacks. Uh, that sort of criminals, that sort of hackers, that sort of uh, people who want to have money. Um, and then it goes up to people who want to do some sort of damage, make some sort of statement as some part of some sort of political conflict. We see that ongoing on a daily basis. Uh, people go and uh, hack websites and put up political messages and things like that, and then go to state actors. That's the extreme end of it, where states um, develop capabilities to sort of uh, go into the networks of other states and first steal things. That's classical espionage. I don't think we're ever going to get rid of that in the world, uh, but also to create damage, uh, to alter data or to create damage. Uh, the most famous case that we've seen is, of course, the Stuknet attack that was done allegedly by the Americans and the Israelis against the Iranian centrifuges. They, they caused them to spin out of control. And if you can do that against centrifuges in Iran, uh, you can do that against whatever. Um, and with uh, societies being more more connected and networked, of course, the vulnerabilities are going to be all over the place, which means that cybersecurity is going to be the security of our societies and uh, going to be a key aspect of the security policy and defense policy of any country, as it is the defense policy of the European Council on Foreign Relations, of Mark Leonard, of Carl Bildt, the way in which we operate in the cyber domain. And what do you think people are going to be able to do about that? Because it seems to be an area where, unlike nuclear technology, which um, meant that uh, people could invest a lot in deterrence and defensive technologies, this seems to be an area where it's very difficult to defend yourself from stuff and where the onus seems to be more on, on offensive operations. 
Well, at the moment, uh, at the moment, I think the offensive has the advantage, and that is because the, the, there are so many vulnerable systems that are out there. Uh, what is going to be 10 years down the line remains to be seen. Uh, I was intrigued recently. I attended a meeting where one discussed the possibilities of artificial intelligence in terms of uh, defense. I mean, artificial intelligence that ends up to detect what is going on out there, see what kind of attack is ongoing, and immediately devises the defense against that particular attack. Uh, that might well happen. We aren't there yet. At the moment, we are at a stage where we are vulnerable, where we know that uh, state actors are developing the offensive systems, and we know that some state actors are using these for offensive capabilities. We've seen Ukraine or different systems in Ukraine come under different sorts of attacks, and both you and I can have our views on the likelihood of that being from some major neighbor <laughs> of, 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 of Ukraine. I can't uh, imagine which one you're talking about, Carl. And no, you never know. The Moldovans are, are as they are. Uh, so I think it's highly appropriate the, the, the attention that is given these days to cybersecurity in, uh, in different countries, and different countries are testing different approaches. I think, as a matter of fact, the UK is probably the one country in Europe that has come the furthest and has the most advanced approach at the moment. And how much of this is, do you think is about doctrine and about the way that people are thinking about things as opposed to technological capabilities? Well, some is. Uh, that's true. Um, uh, we should mention that there is an ongoing uh, debate among governments on norms for state behavior in cyberspace. We have something called the UN, under the United Nations, a governmental group of experts uh, I think is the fifth version of it. It's supposed to report in September of this year to the General Assembly. Uh, according to rumors flying around, they have failed to reach an agreement uh, this time. They have reached agreement previously on different sort of principles and norms for state behavior in cyberspace. Uh, some people are talking about uh, moving towards, uh, I think Microsoft has been talking about as a Geneva Convention, Others has talked about in terms of Westphalia Peace Treaty uh, to regulate the future of behavior in cyberspace. I, I think it's too early for that. But there is an involving a very important discussion. The Chinese, very active, um, they talk about something called the Internet or, or digital sovereignty, which is another way of saying that uh, we Chinese have to be sovereign. The state has to be able to control everything. Um, which is not really the, 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 the concept that is dominating in the Western world, obviously. So one key bit of sovereignty is this whole question of the monopoly of violence, which we've been talking about. But the other is, is about money. Um, how, how much is Bitcoin, blockchain a threat to the idea of, of economic sovereignty? That remains to be seen. Blockchain is um, a new technology. And, and, and some people are saying that blockchain is roughly where the internet was in the late 1980s. Um, it is, of course, a peer-to-peer -peer technology. Uh, you can create value. Um, and it has attracted attention for, as you say, Bitcoin and digital currencies. But there's a huge amount of other potential applications that could create vast possibilities to sort out privacy issues and quite a number of different issues. So where we are 10 or 15 years from now, Let's see. In terms of the cyber currencies, uh, remains to be seen. But you see them, uh, you see them increasing. Um, I see that you can go to bars in Montenegro and pay in Bitcoin these days, whatever that, whatever that means. 
and uh, whether they will undermine sovereignty of states remains to be seen. But clearly the entire financial system will be affected by blockchain-based technologies. To be slightly extreme, you can say banks are hardly necessary any longer if you can make direct transactions. Um, one fascinating thing is if, 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 if you want, you can replace a lot of development aid. I mean, you can, you can transfer money directly without any bank from, say, the UK or Sweden to a poor farmer in the rural area of Kenya. Uh, you can be dead certain that you don't need anything in between uh, for that value to appear with that particular farmer. And uh, you can get rid of a lot of things in between. Now, you have to take one thing. So you can also register different things that he's doing and be absolutely certain that that is absolutely correct without any intermediaries whatsoever. So what the blockchain technology has uh, a lot of, techno- a lot of uh, potential that is yet to be explored. So you think that the common agricultural policy and, and European Union structural funds might be improved by blockchain? Yeah, true, true, true. I hadn't thought about that, but that's perfectly possible. Yes, absolutely. So... Um, if we kind of zoom back out to this question of governance, which is the, the thing which you spent a lot of time thinking about, I mean, that ha- obviously has a big impact on whether we get the good or the bad scenarios that you talked about at the beginning. What do you think the biggest governance challenges are and, and what sorts of things do you think Europeans in particular should be pushing for at the moment? Well, I mean, first, we, the European Union, you need to develop as a cyber, cyber policy, cyber diplomacy, cyber awareness. And this is slightly complicated uh, because this entails certain competences that still rest within the nation states. A lot of security issues, uh, intelligence issues uh, rest with the nation states and, and, and not with Brussels. And exactly how that should be sorted out, that remains to be seen. Um, but developers an international cyber strategy on these particular issues. We need to be active in the debate about the norms for state behavior. Uh, Remember, I think it was two years ago when there was the summit meeting between President Obama at the time and Xi Jinping in Sunnyvale in California. That was dominated by cyber issues. And they managed to get an agreement where the Chinese, or both to be precise, but primarily the Chinese, undertook not to make cyber intrusions for economic gain. And that has later been codified in the G20 now, the places you can discuss whether it's adhered to completely. Um, A follow-up is happening in the UN system, the dialogue on state norms. Uh, But then we need to develop uh, robust systems. We need to see if we can get the insurance systems up and running that can sort of drive. um, I do think that insurance systems can drive a lot of the development further down the line on this. We need to have public awareness. We need to have in the different Western liberal democracies uh, systems that people trust in terms of what the states are allowed to do in terms of uh, surveillance, intrusions into privacy for the sake of security and what they're not allowed to do. And and, and proper systems for parliamentary oversights on what I think everyone agrees to some extent is necessary or not. Um, so there's a huge amount of issues. And we also have all of the issues concerning digital trade. Um, Free, free data flows. The uh, Estonian presidency of the European Union is advancing the idea of having a fifth freedom in Europe. We have the free flow of persons, of, of persons, of services, of information, of goods and services, I think it is. And, and they want to have the free flow of data. 
we had in the TPP agreement that is no longer the Pacific Trade Agreement. Uh, we have provisions on the free flow of data, and uh, we need these. We have the what was the Privacy Shield that is now the Safe Harbor uh, Agreement between the EU and the US on transfer of data, uh, but but clearly there, there's a need for robust and reliable uh, frameworks for the enormous amount of data that's going to flow uh, across the, the borders and boundaries in the future. So it's a, it's a fairly big agenda, as you can hear. It's a huge agenda. And one of the things which, as you said at the very beginning, is unusual is the fact that a lot of this governance has not been driven by governments, but more by, you know, the, some of the kind of civic people who set up the internet in the early days. Companies are obviously uh, quite involved in it. I mean, how do you uh, create new systems of governance which are going to have uh, the credibility and the legitimacy to provide the space for uh, an internet which is uh, positive at a time when there is so much at stake economically and in security terms and also in terms of the basic survival of a lot of governments, in, in, in particularly in the authoritarian countries? Quite. And, 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 and to do that in an international environment that is not the most conducive for cooperation at the moment. No, it is quite a challenge. And I think it would have to operate on quite a number of different fronts. Some of it is done by sort of industry, by business and by technology. For example, now, one of the big issues at the moment is the fifth generation of mobile technologies. And uh, in particular developing country, internet is going to be, access to internet is going to be through mobile technology. So setting the standards for the 5G, uh, it's enormously important that we get the same standards across the world. And, and, and here Europe is in the lead for that particular development. Um, so that's one aspect of it. Then we have all of those state norms that are necessary. We clearly need also, which I didn't mention previously, better procedures um, when it comes to legal cooperation. Um, yesterday there was announced the result of a huge operation by uh, Dutch criminal authorities, by Europol and by the FBI together to bust some of the major dark web trafficking networks. Um, uh, but that requires then legal cooperation in order to be able to apprehend people far away and bring them to courts in quite another country. Because, I mean, here you can have criminals sitting in one jurisdiction, a faraway jurisdiction of dubious nature sometimes, uh, conducting criminal activities in a completely different other jurisdiction based on a server in a third jurisdiction or four or five servers, and possibly hijacking computers in X numbers of other countries. This requires a new degree of legal cooperation. We have the so-called MLAT, Multilateral Assistance Treaty, um, at the moment, but it's far too slow and far too cumbersome. So, I mean, in a way, the the internet is a sort of microcosm or a macrocosm of the of the kind of wider liberal order. I mean, to what extent do you think the debates we've just been having about how you go about doing these things within the internet connect to these kind of bigger questions, including, you know, what happens 
to the role of the US under Donald Trump, um, the the kind of more assertive role being played by some of these big sovereignist powers like China and India and, and Russia and Turkey? Well, I'm to exaggerating slightly for the sake of the argument. I, I think there are two governments in the world that take internet issues uh, seriously. Uh, the one is the Chinese government and one is the Estonian government. They are, they are slightly different size, but they have, they have internet issues front and center of their different concerns. Then you have the, uh, the US government, needless to say, which has been engaged very much on global cyber diplomacy, although there are reports at the moment that uh, Rex Tillerson is going to close the cyber policy unit, the State Department, which I think is a unilateral disarmament of the first order by the US if that happens. Uh, you have the EU, which has been somewhat slow due to, among other things, what I mentioned, that uh, the EU doesn't have enough competence in all of these areas, but that needs to be sorted out. So it is related also how to how the different international actors uh, do. I'm slightly worried about the US. Um, uh, if you listen to President Trump, he's concerned by cybersecurity. I'm with him on that one. Uh, but there are other issues as well, the human rights aspects, the freedom aspects, the dynamic aspects of it. And uh, when he said that he's agreed with President Putin to set up some sort of joint cybersecurity unit, uh, one shouldn't be slightly careful uh, with that, to put it mildly. Hmm. Okay, so I ask all of the guests on the podcast two questions to, to finish up. So I'll ask you those two questions as well. The first is to complete the sentence. The, the liberal order is dot, dot, dot. Is under attack uh, and under strain. And the second is to help people find out more information about what they are, what the, the big topics we've been talking about, what should they read? Now, we'll obviously put a link up to the report of the Global Commission on Internet Governance that you chaired. But apart from that, what, what should people read if they want to go further and deeper? That's a good question. I mean, that report gives you sort of the basic facts about most things. Well, I wouldn't say that because it's, uh, it's soon nearly a year old and things are moving very fast. Um, log on to Internet Society where you can find a lot of updated information on how the global debate is going. Um, that, I think, would be my sort of number one recommendation. And that should not be forgotten that ECFR also pays attention to the digital power issues uh, from a European perspective. Great. Well, thank you very much, Carl. It's been wonderful talking to Thanks, you. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please do tell people about it through social media. And even more importantly, write a review of the podcast on iTunes. In order to encourage you to do this, we have decided to create a special commemorative mug for the end of the world series and if you write a review we will even if it's bad we will send you an end of the world mug to your address so please write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu with a link to your review and an address to send the mug to and you will have something which will make you the envy of your family and friends and will hopefully enjoy thinking about the podcast uh, every time you have a coffee in the morning. For now, from Carl Bill and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. 
The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Archie Hall and our editor is Bullion Gomin. We would like to thank the Finnish Ministry of Foreign Affairs for kindly supporting the research that went into this podcast. Mm-hmm.